Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Wednesday's testimony from the head of the FBI about the increased threat of domestic terrorism as a result of the war in Gaza that was overshadowed by idiotic QAnon accusations from congressional ignoramuses Marjorie Taylor Greene and Clay Higgins. Joining us is Thomas Mikaitis, a professor of history at DePaul University who has taught counterterrorism courses for the past 13 years at venues around the world as part of the U.S. Department of Defense Counterterrorism Fellowship Program. He is the author of six books, including New Terrorism, Myths and Reality, Violent Extremists, Understanding the Domestic and International Terrorist Threat, and the Challenges of Counterinsurgency. We'll discuss his article at The Hill, Defeating Hamas is the Easy Part, Lasting Peace is the Critical Goal. Then we'll look into the divisions among Democratic voters over support for Israel and support for Palestinian rights following a heated demonstration at DNC headquarters and assess the likely impact of APEC's $100 million investment in running candidates against members of the squad in next year's primaries. Joining us is Alexander Salmon, a politics writer at Slate, who has previously written for Mother Jones, The New Republic, and The American Prospect. We will discuss his latest article at Slate, The Squad is About to Fight for Its Political Life. Then finally, we'll get an appraisal of Wednesday's meeting between Bryden and Xi and speak with Michael Swain, a senior research fellow and former director of the Quincy Institute's East Asia program and one of the most prominent American scholars of Chinese security studies. Previously, he worked for nearly 20 years as a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, specializing in Chinese defense and foreign policy, U.S.-China relations, and East Asian international relations. He also advises the U.S. government on Asian security issues, and his books include Remaining Aligned on the Challenges Facing Taiwan and Conflict and Cooperation in the Asia-Pacific Region, a Strategic Net Assessment. And before we begin, Background Briefing's mission of building a reality-based community in post-truth America is taking on a new urgency now that we have a fundamentalist Christian theocrat in charge of the People's House, as Trump's insurrectionists, know-nothings, election deniers, and armed and angry cult followers threaten to take over the executive branch, having already captured the judiciary. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. Please make a tax-deductible donation at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation publictruthmedia.org so that we can continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism, wrapped in the flag, and carrying a Bible. And joining us now is Thomas Mikaitis, who's a professor of history at DePaul University, who has taught counterterrorism courses for the past 13 years at venues around the world as part of the U.S. Department of Defense's Counterterrorism Fellowship Program. He's the author of six books, including New Terrorism, Myths and Reality, Violent Extremists, Understanding the Domestic and International Terrorist Threat, and Iraq and the Challenge of Counterinsurgency. And he has an article at The Hill, Defeating Hamas is the Easy Part. Lasting peace is the critical goal. Welcome to Background Briefing, Thomas Makaitis. Thank you. So before we get into the Israel-Hamas war, let's talk a little bit about a hearing that took place on Wednesday on Capitol Hill with the head of the FBI in the witness chair being 
berated by Marjorie Taylor Greene and other members of the Republican Congress. And I guess the whole point of the hearing was missed, which is uh, what you've been following, which is that because of tensions uh, between supporters of Israel and supporters of Palestine, there is an increased terrorist threat in this country from domestic terrorism. Uh, that's absolutely correct. What they chose to do instead, these uh, individuals, was to grandstand and promote the latest conspiracy theory about so-called ghost buses bringing in um, you, you know, uh, p- people dressed as Trump supporters and what uh, the military sometimes calls a false flag operation to make it look like they were responsible. This is just the latest variation on a QAnon theory going all the way back almost to January 6th itself where what we saw is not really what happened that even you know that the that somehow antifa were the ones doing this to make trump and his followers look bad i mean it it was a rather bizarre uh, situation and as you said it really was beside the point of the entire hearing well the the congressman that brought up the ghost buses i mean it's, i know it sounds like ghostbusters the movie but he was talking yes. about ghost Buses that bust the FBI bust in a bunch of agents and and provocateurs and they were really responsible for January the sixth. This character from Louisiana, Representative Clay Higgins, put that question to Ray and Ray didn't even know what he was talking about. A ghost bust. I'm not sure I've used that, that term before. And he tried to you know emphatically deny, but of course you can't deal with these people because they're they bought into these conspiracy theories so is this a case then tom of the fact that america to some extent is becoming an idiocracy and uh, therefore it's not surprising that we have stupid people representing the idiocracy in congress well you know the other thing i would say is it's sometimes difficult to tell how many of them literally believe what they're saying or find it simply convenient. I think those two probably do. Um, but uh, the thing is, when you live, if you're absolutely right, if you live in a, a society in which there is no such thing as an objectively agreed upon fact, that fact is merely what the leader tells you it is, that's the quintessential definition of fascism. Um, and that's a that's a real danger, um, you know, that really, there, as you said, impervious to logic, reason, or, or evidence. And uh, it's hard to fathom where, where we're going to go with that. So let's talk about what the hearing was supposed to be about and what Ray was trying to tell the lawmakers, that there is an increased domestic terrorism threat as a result of the war in Gaza. Well, that's absolutely correct. What <clears throat> what he was saying is he stressed that there's no imminent, uh, you know, threat in terms of any concrete plot or activity. What they've seen is increased chatter, you know, in, increased discussion using Gaza as a cause celebra among extremist groups. I think there are, as he acknowledged, two, you know, a very real threat from two sources, both le- you know, from one side and the other. On the one hand. You've got the, you know, the Islamist threat, and then you also have the threat from domestic extremists. In both cases, the most likely scenario is not an outside group, but an individual motivated by an ideology or just misinformation, um, you know, engaging in an act of terrorism, similar to what Omar Mateen did uh, in 2015 
when he shot up uh, the the uh, Pulse nightclub, murder, murdering 49 people and you know swearing allegiance to ISIS in the process. Or tragically, more recently, as we had with the Plainfield man, not far away from where I actually live, who um, you know stabbed that poor little six-year-old boy 26 times merely because he was a Palestinian. Um, I think this is the these are the concerns because it's important to remember for those on the far right in the U.S. they are both anti-Semitic and Islamophobic. So uh, <laughs> what is that? Whose side are they on then? The uh, white nationalists. Well, well, they're on their own side. Um, but I think in this particular case, the uh, the danger uh, is, is most immediately to Muslims because they also, many of them, embrace this bizarre notion of Christian nationalism, which is this idea that, uh, you know, we are the chosen people and the U.S. is, uh, you know, the new Israel and all that ironic choice of words there. And they, they support, uh, many of them, the state of Israel for what is widely acknowledged as anti-Semitic reasons. The Jews must go back, uh, Armageddon will happen, and uh, Jesus will return and either convert them or send them all to hell. Right. So that is uh, the end of times. Yeah. Theocratic obscenity, really. Um, yeah. Right. But, uh, it's a toxic worldview, correct. Right. So given that you got that strain out there, and Christian nationalism, by the way, the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, has a Christian nationalist flag in his office, doesn't he? Those are the reports. Uh, I'm not sure whether we have confirmation of that or not, um, but he certainly is identifies with the religious right in Christianity. Right. So what then is the situation, the way you see it between uh, Hamas and Israel, it looks as though this siege of the hospital that they finally, the Israeli military now have been able to capture it and enter it, and it was supposed to be the headquarters of uh, Hamas underneath, and all they found so far is a few Kalashnikovs and nothing, and a couple of laptops, nothing would indicate a headquarters. Is there a parallel here with the U.S. intervention in Iraq, which followed, of course, the trauma of the 9-11 attack. And because if Israel's doing the same, being baited and goaded by a terrorist group yep. in, into invading, in this case, not Iraq, but uh, Gaza, and your article at the Hill says, you know, is defeating Hamas is the easiest part, lasting peace is the critical goal. It sort of reminds yeah. me of what happened with Iraq, which was a, a quick victory followed by a slow defeat. Is that how you see things working out for Israel in uh, Gaza? Not exactly. The first part of what you said is absolutely right. This is one of the oldest tactics to bait your opponent, you know, especially if you're an insurgent group, into overreacting to get favorable opinion on your side. In fact, ironically, the Zionist insurgents against British occupation in 1944 to 46 did exactly the same thing. In this case, there's no question that with superior uh, military resources and power that uh, Israel will you know, uh, occupy and control Gaza, but then what? Uh, it reminds me of uh, you know a British officer I talked to was in the Ministry of Defense in 1969, and someone said, "General, do you have a battalion of troops I can put into Northern Ireland?" And he says, "Yes, but you'll never get them out." 
That was in 1969. The last British unit left in 2007. Um, you know, it, it's extremely easy to get into these things. Lou McKenzie, the Canadian general um, who was in charge of Sector Sarajevo during the Bosnian War, said it's like a dog chasing a bus. The dog has a plan till he catches the bus. Then what? Um, it's, somebody's got to govern Gaza, and Israel said they're going to be in charge of security. But who's going to rebuild it? Who's going to feed people? Who's going to provide food, water, medicine, everything that needs to be done, get the economy up and running? A whole bunch of unanswered questions. Um, and the more this goes on, the more Israel loses the moral high ground. And you're absolutely right. If they cannot document that there is actually this headquarters under the hospital, this is going to be a, a pretty ugly situation for them. Well, the recent Reuters poll has now support for Israel uh, from the United States has dropped uh, from 41% to 32%. And 68% mm -hmm. of respondents to the Reuters-Ipsos poll said they agreed with the statement that Israel should call a ceasefire and mm -hmm. try to negotiate. So it puts Biden out of step with his own party, doesn't it? It does indeed. And um, there's among the party with the election coming, there's great concern that a swing, the swing state of Michigan, which has the largest, to the best of my knowledge, Muslim population in the country, there is great unhappiness and many claims that they're going to vote third party rather than support him if things don't change. Um, we really are the only ones, though, in a position to put pressure on Israel because, you know, as long as we give them aid and the aid is unconditional, <clears throat> they don't have nearly as much incentive. And I think also Netanyahu is trying to play this to stay in power um, at any price, that he's the tough guy who can take them out. Problem is, you know, the Qassam brigades that carried out this attack, the military wing of Hamas, there's no question they're terrorists. But on the other hand, you know, the other elements of this organization are the government of Gaza. So it's, it's not a simple, oh, you can't give in to terrorists, you can't negotiate with them. I mean, no one defends what was done on October 7th. But on the other hand, you got to move forward. Um, and the Palestinians need somewhere to live. No one's going to take them in. And, you know, uh, there's, there's, it's looking more and more like, as President Biden said yesterday in his press conference, there is nothing, no alternative to his two-state solution if you really want lasting peace. Well, but Netanyahu's entire political career is about undoing the possibility of a two-state solution. Exactly right. He's creating what used to be called facts on the ground by aggressively expanding the settlements. And that's due in large measure to the fact that he's got uh, Ben Gavir from the far right, one of the far right parties in his government, who's pushing hard for that. And then, of course, eventually there just is no land on which to create that Palestinian state. But right now, his foreign policy is in a shambles. The idea that he could bypass the, um, you know, the Palestinian authority and simply make peace with all the Arab governments that was one of the incentives for Duke carrying out the attack, and it appears to have worked. Iran was partly behind uh, behind this, um, that, that, you know, isolating the Palestinians, making them irrelevant, so they're not even on, at the negotiating table, just has not worked. Um, so, you know, we're now back to where we should have been, which is the Oslo Accords of 1993, which is, look, you got to work this out somehow. Well... There is a possibility of some uh, breakthrough, mm -hmm. albeit not a ceasefire, but apparently there's a 
a deal being negotiated between Israel and Hamas to release 50 women and children mm-hmm. abducted on October the 6th uh, in exchange for the same number of Palestinian women and children held in Israeli prisons. Is there anything, do you know anything more on that? I don't, but it wouldn't surprise me. And of course, that cuts the legs out of the don't negotiate with terrorists argument. Every government says that and everyone does negotiate, especially when hostages are involved. But Netanyahu is coming under increasing pressure in Israel. First of all, he doesn't command the support of the majority of Israelis. Yes, they're unified in waging the war. It doesn't mean they're unified in supporting him. And there's growing pressure saying that he's not really doing enough to try to get the hostages out which should be his first priority. So I'd be very surprised if his government survives this or his political career for that matter. And then once the dust settles, there is the larger question of how did you let this happen in the first place? Why were you caught so by surprise? Uh, Why did your intelligence organizations not catch the warning signs or did you just ignore them? And why was your much vaunted security surrounding the Gaza Strip so easily penetrated? He's gonna have a lot to answer for. Well, you know, one of the things I find troubling about Netanyahu, and there are many, is that all of the stuff that he's talking about, Hamas and what they did on October the 7th, which and Biden mentioned in his press conference uh, in San Francisco after having met with President Xi of China about you know decapitating children and burning families alive. It's incredibly horrible what Hamas did. But what the Russians have been doing to the Ukrainians ever since for over a year now is just hideous. It's the same kind of stuff, raping women, beheading people, uh, killing children, castrating male prisoners. And yet Netanyahu supports Putin and wouldn't even let Zelensky enter the country where his parents live in Israel. Who wanted to it wanted to show solidarity with the, the Israelis after the October seventh attack? I'm not sure that it's fair to say that you supports Putin. Um, I think he's probably kept him, you know, kept the entire war at a distance. I'm not familiar with that Zelensky case. Um, um, but on the other hand, yeah, the U.S. has a really hard time, you know, holding the moral high ground and lecturing Russia about human rights violations when they can turn around and say, but yeah, look at your ally. I don't think there's a complete moral equivalence here. I don't don't want to say that. Um, Israel is not doing the same things that that Putin was doing. I mean, what they're doing is, to me, the problem is an over-reliance on firepower and two permissive rules of engagement. Um, It comes from casualty aversion. I understand that. you know, but he's not. He's not this. He's not in quite the same category there. Um, but you know, I think you know, along with the ceasefire, the United Nations High Commission for Human Rights has said, you know, let us send an independent, um, you know, independent monitors to verify war crimes committed by Hamas. But they also said we're going to investigate what Israel is doing, and that's kind of a non-starter. So you know it. It's a it's a difficult situation, um, you know, and to spare civilian casualties, you have to you're going to take more military casualties on your side because the alternative to the firepower is, you know, the, the tedious task of what we did in future, which is to go in house by house and street by street and clear it out. Um, that's the only surgical way of doing it. And you, you will lose more. So far, I think about 44 Israeli soldiers have been killed. 
Um, that pales compared to 11,500 uh, residents of Gaza, most of whom are civilian, and about 4,500 of whom are children. Well, those are the statistics that resonate around the world, though, aren't they, Tom? I mean, yeah. And that's what's costing America a lot in terms of its foreign policy and, yeah. and diplomacy. We're very isolated, particularly in the Global South. We were before, with the Global South not supporting the U.S. and NATO's efforts in Ukraine, and now it's even they're doubling down against the U.S. So the U.S. is paying a price for. Yeah. So I'm assuming that. What Biden is telling the Israelis is to get this damn thing over with as quickly as possible. Is that what do you think is going on behind the scenes? I think I don't. The problem is you can't get it over quickly unless you do rely on firepower. You begin to do it the right way is to do it slowly and methodically. And I think that's where the pressure is coming in. And, um, you know, but I think, you know, the real the real teeth in that would be to say, look, any more aid to both parties, Palestinians and Israelis, must be contingent on, first of all, respecting international norms and also, um, you know, um, getting back to the bargaining table. Um, that's really, really the, what it would take. And it isn't just the U.S. The British government's coming under enormous pressure. Um, so is the French. Um, and so the Germans as well, mainly because they're barring any kind of demonstrations, which given their history is understandable, but on the same tokens, it also violates issues of free speech. And the other thing I'm profoundly worried about is the price that Jews and Muslims in the diaspora communities outside of Israel are going to be, you know, outside of, you know, where the countries of origin, where people are, whose ancestors came from, are paying for this because we're seeing an increase in hate crimes against both communities. And that is profoundly worrying because we saw dramatic increases in anti-Semitism over the past year, even before this occurred. And I expect that to get worse. And of course, the Islamophobia, it doesn't help that you've got, you know, Trump and his supporters talking about another Muslim ban and all this other kind of stuff. It's just grist for the mills of, of unstable people who, you know, just get the bit between their teeth and say, well, I'm going to act on this. Well, Tom McCartis, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Okay, I'm happy to do it. Um, and uh, hopefully the next time we speak, we'll have something, <laughs> something more more hopeful and positive to talk about. Have a nice day. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Thomas McIntyre, who's a professor of history at DePaul University, who has taught counterterrorism courses for the past 13 years at venues around the world as part of the U.S. Department of Defense's Counterterrorism Fellowship Program. He's the author of six books, including New Terrorism, Myths and Reality, Violent Extremists, Understanding the Domestic and International Terrorist Threat, and Iraq and the Challenge of Counterinsurgency. And he has an article at The Hill, Defeating Hamas is the easy part. Lasting peace is the critical goal. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into divisions amongst Democratic voters over support for Israel and support for Palestinian rights following a heated demonstration at DNC headquarters. And we'll also assess the likely impact of APAC's $100 million investment to run candidates against members of the squad in next year's primaries. Captain will fall, his captain's play. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Alexander Salmon, who is a politics writer at Slate, who has previously written for Mother Jones, The New Republic, and The American Prospect. His latest article at Slate is, The Squad is About to Fight for Its Political Life. Welcome to Background Briefing, Alexander Salmon. Hey, Ian. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Alex. And it's clear that the war in Gaza is dividing the Democrats. And there was quite a tussle in front of DNC headquarters yesterday with the police clashing with the protesters, uh, calling for a Gaza ceasefire. And it was so intense that Akeem Jeffries, the minority leader of the House Democrats, had to be evacuated from the building. I take it that that's a sign of divisions within the Democratic Party, to say the least. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there are yeah, huge divergences here on uh, just on a, on a really broad level between Democratic voters and Democratic politicians. Uh, and you see there's been a number of polls done now. The sort of most circulated one done by Data for Progress said that 80 percent of Democrats support a ceasefire. Uh, Reuters had a poll yesterday that said it was, um, I think, 75 percent. And yet the number of Democrats in Congress who've called for a ceasefire is about 5 percent. You know, this is something where there's a huge, huge distance between democratic will and democratic representation. And I think we're seeing some of that play out in real time. Well, it's no secret that the democratic leadership is aging uh, with President Biden and Steny Hoyer, etc. So is the Democratic Party divided between the old guard and the the new breed? Oh, absolutely. Yes. There are, yeah, the generational splits on this are also incredibly stark, but the generational divide is not just determined by age. So someone like Hakeem Jeffries, you know, is talked about as the new guard, right? He's the new, the new leader uh, for Democrats, but he's very, very much a part of this old sort of guard style of thinking. And, and you can see that because if you go to the APAC website, um, APAC being obviously the, the uh, American Israel uh, political the, action uh, committee. The local action committee, exactly. Uh, if you go to their website, you'll see Hakeem Jeffries all over it. But again, if you look at like you know the cross tabs on these polls, young Democrats overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly support a ceasefire, and you know younger uh, Democratic politicians also uh, have a very, very different position on this. Not categorically, but the the trends are very, very strong. Well, APEC ironically used to be a lobby that was deeply inculcated in the Democratic Party. But then under Israeli Prime Minister Shamir, who decided he didn't really entirely trust the Goyim, so he initiated an approach to the Republicans, and particularly the Republican right, the so-called Christian Zionists. And have they taken over APEC, and notwithstanding the fact that, that Hakim Jeffries is definitely in the po- pocket of APEC? Yeah, absolutely. So you, you you can see this trend basically on on recent hirings and staffing decisions at the highest level of APAC, um, where they've they've staffed up from the Trump Republican National Committee. They they hired a, a their digital director was working for the Trump RNC in September of 2020 and then began working at APAC in November of 2020. So we you know we all know well what uh what happened during that election and what followed. They've hired from 
top evangelical or organizations in the country. So it's it's a really pronounced shift. I think that, that is, a, is something that's really worth highlighting that the organization hasn't just lurched to the right because of political wins or whatever. They've, they've made a very concerted decision to become more of a Republican institution. And that means not just right-wing policy on Israel, but that means they've championed right-wing policy on everything. Uh, and that it's become a, it's, it's an organization that's kind of begun to work in lockstep with Republican groups on policy priorities up and down the list. So in targeting then the so-called squad with $100 million, which uh, Apex is going to spend to defeat these members in the primaries, and we're talking about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilan Omar, Rashid Tlaib, Ayan Presley, uh, Corey Bush, Jamal Bowman, Summer Lee, and then there are others as well, Greg uh, Kayser, Delia Ramirez, and Maxwell Frost, who's the youngest uh, member of Congress and a particularly inspiring young man who is the last person in the world that you should want to get rid of and have them booted out of the Congress. That I find extraordinary that they're targeting Maxwell Frost. Yeah, so 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 Frost doesn't ha- doesn't have an opponent yet, and and it's yet to be seen if if they'll put someone up to uh, go against him. What what I've heard in my reporting and what we know so far is that the four you know of the seven most prominent progressives in Congress, which we sort of refer to loosely as a squad, uh, that list that you mentioned. Um, four of them have already officially gotten primary challengers. That was a result of incredibly strenuous recruiting by APAC to get those primary challengers committed to running against them. Those four names are Summer against Summer Lee, Ilhan Omar, Jamal Bowman, and Corey Bush. And then we, I, I also know from reporting and and you know what, what's been reported actually broadly is that. Uh, there's a uh, a very vigorous campaign on to get a opponent for Rashida to leave as well. So those five are marked right now as top priorities. They're going to they're going to fund their opponents at at exorbitant, exceptional levels. And it's possible that we see challengers for those other uh, representatives you mentioned. It's possible we don't, but the you know some of them are very you know sort of very ensconced. Like AOC, you would say at this point is basically untouchable. You know, she's she's already weathered, uh, you know, some well-funded opposition campaigns. It's going to be impossible to knock her off. So they may not enter that race, but these conversations are still happening, which is, I think, in, notable in its own right, that, that they're talking about uh, going after representatives who are seemingly totally safe and wouldn't otherwise lose because that's the level of financial commitment they're ready to make here. So it's, it's going to be a, a, an incredible battle in the, the coming months. Well, previously, APEC went after the son of a very uh, respected uh, Democratic senator. They went after Andy Levin, didn't they? And I think he, he was tied in with a local synagogue. He was had all the credentials of somebody that was in, in support of Israel. And yet they, they went after him and they knocked him off, didn't they? Yep, exactly. Yeah. So Andy Levin, former synagogue president, Certainly, one of the most prominent Jewish members in the in the Democratic Party and in, uh, in in Congress, someone who identified as as a as a Zionist. I mean, someone who you know supported a two state solution was not radical on this issue at all, and was you know again a a, a very high ranking and well respected Jewish member. Um, and they came after him 
in in his election last year and and spent millions of dollars uh, opposing him on behalf of a non-Jewish member. And they managed to knock him out of Congress after many years. And uh, that, that I think was a huge loss and also a really strong indication of how serious this campaign was even two years ago. I mean, this, you know, we should say that this this commitment that, that they're, uh, you know, reportedly in the process of making uh, this hundred million dollars to spend in Democratic primaries, this started uh, in the last cycle with uh, with an expenditure of, of upwards of 30 million dollars. So it's uh, obviously it's a massive escalation. But that race was a very, very notable one because it, it was a signal that any criticism of Israel whatsoever, even even just so far as to say you support a two state solution is not enough to protect you from uh, APAC coming after you with millions of dollars. And as they showed in that race, they can they can turn elections and, and they turn that election against a very popular and well-respected congressman um, in favor of someone who they thought would do uh, their bidding uh, more directly. But on Wednesday, after Biden met with China Xi, he had a press conference at which he stressed that the answer ultimately about the Gaza war is a two-state solution. And if it's coming from the president as a Democrat, you'd think that uh, that would not be a disqualifying call. Yeah, well, the, the, the interesting thing is that the, the APAC will pick its spots, right? So it's not going to go after uh, the president, at least not now. Um, but with these smaller races, you know, in, in the context of a Democratic primary, their mission for the last two years has been very, very openly to get the most right-wing Democrats into safe Democratic seats. And so Biden did say that, but he also has said a lot of stuff about, you know, basically giving Netanyahu carte blanche to do whatever he wants to do, to not criticizing uh, the excesses of the Israeli military in any meaningful way. And even yesterday, you know, was 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 repeating um, what I would say was just already totally proven proven false uh, IDF talking points about the Al-Shifa hospital and the Hamas headquarters that was allegedly hidden beneath it. Of course, now we know it's not true, um, but Biden was saying it anyways. So his loyalty to both to Netanyahu and, and to the Israel lobby is, is uh, you know, it's, it's longstanding. So when he says two-state solution, uh, that comes in the context of all of these other things that uh, make it a two-state, a two-state solution actually impossible. Whereas someone like Andy Levin worked with worked with Jewish groups at, uh, in D.C. that were not APAC to criticize Netanyahu and and put forward a different vision, and, and that was uh, too much for them. But this is crazy, though, to target these young minority women. I mean, you know, relatively young compared to the median age of the Democratic uh, representatives. Uh, you know, Cory Bush, Jamal Bowman. Anna Presley, Ilan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and particularly Maxwell Frost, along with Greg Kaiser and Delia Ramirez. I mean, isn't that the future of the Democratic Party? That as the Republican Party become their leader, is <laughs> is a white racist, you know, fascist who appeals to the worst in white nationalism. So you'd think, you know, that a party that's the opposite of that needs people like the very people that uh, APAC is targeting. Absolutely. I mean, there's just no question about that. It's it's right. This is the in every way the party has told its voters, its donors, it has made this 
clear from the very beginning that, that that's the, the future of the party is its youth vote, incredibly important to its electoral fate, uh, and also its, its its broad minority appeal. So it's incredibly diverse uh, range of of racial and gender identities. And and uh, while, the, while the Republican Party is obviously very, very old, male and white. So it's it's absolutely an ex- it's an existential threat to the Democratic Party as it sees itself uh, to its longevity, to its future. I mean, these are the rising stars of the party. They're, they're the very most popular politicians that are best known. And um, but APAC is, you know, the top donor to, 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 to Mike Johnson, the, you know, the, the speaker of the House now, who is all those things that you mentioned. APAC is his top donor. And so the the reality of the organization now is that it's operating as a Republican outfit. And so if, if Republicans see an opportunity to knock out, you know, the most popular, youngest and most progressive members of the rival party, they're going to take it. And they're basically betting that the Democratic leadership won't say anything. And and so far, they've been right. So far, the Democratic Party at, at its top levels has not said this is unacceptable, has not said this will be allowed to happen. They've just said, I, Hakeem Jeffries said verbatim that outside groups are going to do what outside groups are going to do. That's, you know, that's the best they can muster. Well, it's extraordinary that uh, the APEC leadership haven't noticed that the leader of the Republican Party, Donald Trump, has been channeling Adolf Hitler lately. I mean, it's just breathtaking. Uh, I thank you for joining us, uh, Alexander Salmon. Yep, happy to come on. And again, I've been speaking with Alexander Salmon, who's a politics writer at Slate, who has previously written for Mother Jones, The New Republic, and The American Prospect. And his latest article at Slate is, The Squad is About to Fight for Its Political Life. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an appraisal of Wednesday's meeting between Biden and Xi. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Swain, a senior research fellow and former director of the Quincy Institute's East Asia program and one of the most prominent American scholars of Chinese security studies. Previously, he worked for nearly 20 years as a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, specializing in Chinese defense and foreign policy, U.S.-China relations, and East Asian international relations. He also advises the U.S. government on Asian security issues, and his books include Remaining Aligned on the Challenges Facing Taiwan and Conflict and Cooperation in the Asia-Pacific Region, a Strategic Net Assessment. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Swain. Thank you. Glad to be back here. Well, thanks for joining us, Michael. And what was your impression of the Wednesday meeting between President Biden and China's Xi Jinping just south of San Francisco? They strolled through the gardens and had a meeting that Joe Biden later talked about at a press conference, obviously playing up the positive. But overall, what are the takeaways for you from the so-called summit? Well, I guess for me, the the takeaway was that even though it's good for the two presidents to get together, and it was the first time since they had done so in Bali a year ago, um, 
and it's good to be making some positive statements and reaching some agreements, which they apparently have done on fentanyl and 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 other things. Um, it, it really was not a game-changing meeting of any kind. Um, in some ways, I think it was a lost opportunity. And um, I was rather disappointed with the failure of either side to really come to grips with some of the critical questions that that really are are uh, I think contributing to so much of the tumultuous nature of the of the relationship, particularly regarding Taiwan. Um, so for me, I, there there was there was some good news. There was some positive uh, agreements on points that are going to start talking in some regards in no mill dialogues and. Um, so that's all to the good, sure, but it, it doesn't really alter, I think, the underlying dynamic, which is at work in the relationship, which is pushing us more and more towards uh, deeper levels of competition, bordering on confrontation, and uh, with repercussions for the global system in a variety of different ways, and towards uh, the possibility of a crisis over something like Taiwan. Um, nothing that happened at this summit has fundamentally altered those underlying dynamics, which are rooted in some basic continued suspicions on both sides about the motives and tensions of the other uh, and and where what they're trying to do uh, to undermine each other. There, there was no positive vision of the future of the relationship. There was no sense about where we want to be in 10, 15 years in this relationship. What is going to serve as the real basis for stability? over time, and as opposed to just a process of talking, keeping lines of communication open, cooperating where we can. I mean, that was the say that was really the theme of of much of that of this summit that hasn't hasn't changed anything really. Well, the first question in the press conference uh, was about Taiwan. And Biden did not answer it. He just said that we're sticking with the one China policy, and that was it. He didn't he didn't answer the question. But apparently, according to the White House, uh, the meeting over Taiwan was clear-headed and not heated. But what you're saying, Michael, is that we're still on a collision course over Taiwan. Well, I'm not predicting a conflict over it, but we're still operating in ways that lead each side to take actions that reinforce the, the fears that on the Chinese side that the U.S. is moving towards greater levels of support for Taiwan independence, um, and on the U.S. side that the Chinese are moving towards an increased reliance on military intimidation and, and, and threats uh, regarding the Taiwan issue. Um, I think, to his credit, Biden, in responding to the question about about uh, Taiwan and the defense of Taiwan by the United States, he stuck this time to his talking points, uh, which was to reiterate support for the one China policy and to not state what he has stated several times before, which is if the Chinese were to attack, we'll defend Taiwan, which is not U.S. policy. Um, U.S. policy is not that it will, it's certainly not that it will not defend Taiwan, but the United States remains ambiguous on that on that score. And that is the proper course for U.S. policy. And Biden, it's finally gotten through him that it does not serve the interests of the United States for him to be constantly repeating that if the Chinese were to attack, we'll jump to the defense of Taiwan. 
Um, so I think he, I think he's, you know, that was that was a good that was a good point in his comments there. And apparently, although I can't I can't find U.S. confirmation of this on the U.S. side, the Chinese side has claimed that that Biden repeated the five point statement that he had made on the Taiwan question at Bali a year ago, where he said that the U.S. does not seek um, a new Cold War with China. It doesn't seek to change China's political system to strengthen alliances against China or to support Taiwan independence, et cetera, et cetera. He made those statements during the Bali meeting. The Chinese claim he made the same statement and repeated that, which is what the Chinese were looking for at this summit in San Francisco, but the American side has not confirmed that. Now, I don't think the Chinese would make up a quote by Biden, but if the U.S. side hasn't hasn't confirmed that publicly and, and it's trying to avoid doing so. So, of course, Biden uh, made much of the military to military connections, uh, which is obviously really important, and said that they have a system now where if, if there's a problem between the two countries, they can immediately pick up the phone and they'll they'll get a quick response. So all of that is good. He spent a lot of uh, time at the press conference talking about how good the agreement was over fentanyl. Now, Michael, it seems to be extraordinary from the, in the first place is initially the U.S. got an agreement out of China not to ship fentanyl largely to Mexico. And uh, what they agreed to apparently was that they would uh, then start curbing the shipment of the precursors, the chemicals. Correct. But the fact that China's been uncooperative for years and thousands of Americans have been dying, that's not good in itself, right? I mean, what what is their motive? Why have they been so slow in dealing with this, which is obviously a hostile act on their part, given the the death count? Well, I mean, I wouldn't go that far. I don't think it's, a, it's an overtly hostile act on their part. I think that initially the Chinese did, in fact, agree, and they made a, a significant agreement in that regard, I have been told, um, to stop the shipment of fentanyl um, to the United States or to reduce it drastically. I don't know what the exact levels were agreed upon. Um, and and uh, they made a commitment and they followed through on that. But the problem is that the precursors, the chemical precursors and some of the equipment made to make pills, that sort of thing, are still going to the United States and coming through, in many cases, through Mexico. And so this recent agreement was to try to stop that flow of these pre, so-called precursors into the United States. And we will see if, in fact, that that happens. Um, I, you know, one one thing that has, of course, served as an obstacle from the Chinese side on this is that the United States has sanctioned uh, certain entities that are involved in the enforcement of some of these rules regarding transfer of what the United States would regard as unacceptable chemicals, drugs, whatever. And the Chinese have insisted that the sanctions be raised that they stop sanctioning if they want to get cooperation uh, from the Chinese side. So I think there was a negotiated agreement here that the United States is going to ease these sanctions, which is something that, in fact, should 
be the case. The United States, if it levels sanctions, they should have a clear understanding about what the conditionality is for those sanctions and under what conditions they're going to raise the sanctions. Um, in most cases, the U.S. doesn't do that. But in this case, I think they reach an agreement so that the forces that are trying to staunch the flow of these precursors in the United States, in, in China, are now going to have uh, the political wherewithal, the support to be able to do that. Um, so, I mean, there was, you know, finger pointing on both sides as to what was going on here. And uh, the Chinese really strongly reject these, these sanctions, of course, and they, they use leverage to try and get them lifted. Um, so that's, what's, that's what has been happening. Now, of course, on the Chinese side, you also have the argument among some that, look, the ultimate source of this problem is in the United States. I mean, Americans are consumers. They're the ones who are using fentanyl. They're the ones who are getting addicted to it. So, you know, why, why aren't you doing more to, to, to limit that addictive arc, that, that development, and, and, and not just sort of blame us for creating it? We didn't create it. Sure. Well, that's the blind spot of the war on drugs, isn't it? We yeah. never look at ourselves as the consumer of drugs, and nobody asks the question, why do so many Americans take drugs? But still, does that mean, though, on the Chinese side, that they have a problem cracking down on these gangs, these criminal gangs like the triads? Oh, sure. I mean, I think they, I, I think that, you know, I mean, China is a huge country, 1.4 billion people. There's a lot going on there that is not controlled, absolutely controlled by the PRC government in Beijing. That said, uh, if the Chinese were to mount a sufficiently serious effort to shut down these, these chemical precursors and such, um, I think they probably could do it to a, to a high degree, maybe not entirely, but they could do it to a high degree. And it, it really just involves getting the right kind of dynamic, the right kind of understanding going between the U.S. and the Chinese side so that both sides feel that they're gaining something out of whatever action it is that they might take. And, you know, for the Chinese, I mean, it's, it's, it's been a, a case of pushing back against American pressure on this and other issues. And for the United States, it's trying to get the Chinese to comply with what the U.S. wants. And, and they, I think, reached some kind of middle ground compromise here on this that hopefully will reduce the flow of these things into the United States. And then if the United States can attack it more, more effectively on the consumer side, we might see it reduced. But, I mean, it is a major, major crisis for the United States, that's for sure. So there was an open letter from that was organized by the Quincy Institute that preceded uh, this uh, meeting between uh, Biden and Xi. It included professional groups uh, and organizations representing farmers, educators, workers, scientists, climate advocates, veterans, and more that asking both Biden and Xi to commit to the sustained reduction of dangerous frictions in bilateral relations. Do you know anything about that uh, letter? I, uh, you know, honestly, I was not instrumental in producing that letter. I saw drafts of it as it was being produced within Quincy and provided my comments uh, for it. Um, but I, I was not the driver behind the letter, and I, and I did not create, as it were, the, the content of the letter per se. I was certainly aware of it. Right. You know, I think 
was it was a it was a sort of common denominator statement that could be signed on to by the number of organizations that signed on to it that I think you know expressed a totally unobjectionable sentiment, which is that hope there was there was hope and expectation that the meeting of the two presidents this time would would actually lay a more stable foundation under the relationship that would be based more on positive types of outcomes, not just on keeping lines of communication open, which is what the U.S. government says sort of ad nauseum, uh, and, and actually working to try to produce some productive outcomes that can sustain the relationship over time. And, you know, so I think it was, a, I think it was fine for what it was, the letter, and I think it got a fair amount of press attention, and, you know, that was the whole point. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Michael, after she and Biden met, she then met later with the uh, CEOs of a lot of big uh, U.S. corporations and a lot of the Silicon Valley people, as, you know, including Elon Musk and others. What do you think was achieved there? Because a lot of capitalists coming out of China, a lot of investment is coming out of China from Americans. There was a, obviously a huge amount that went in. And that's probably why she is is in the U.S. He's worried about the lack of investment or the drying up of investment as his economy struggles. Well, yeah, I think that certainly is an issue there, and that's one reason why he's he did the summit. I mean, I think there are other reasons as well, but I think that meeting was was really intended to send signals from both sides, and from the Chinese side, she was trying to take send the signal, look, there have been developments that, that may be concerning to some uh, overseas corporations, but we are, we are open for business and we're addressing those concerns and we want very much for foreign businesses to stay very actively engaged in China, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so he, he wanted very much to push that, that we're not out to, to, to punish or, or undermine or investigate foreign corporations, uh, we want them to be on the best, you know, in the best possible circumstances in China. And the U.S. signal, the corporate signal was, uh, we want this to, we want what you're saying to be true. And we want, we want to have business relations in China. We want to continue our contacts and our relationships, our investment, our trade in and with China. Um, we're major entities on the, in the corporate world. And uh, we're, we're showing that, you know, we don't want decoupling. We don't want some radical shift in the U.S.-China economic relationship. Um, but, you know, it takes two to tango. We have to have a greater degree of assurances from the Chinese side to give us more confidence in the business environment that we're operating in within China. So those signals were sent through that meeting. And we shall see if indeed they, they do get reflected in concrete actions taken by the Chinese government that reassure foreign businesses, not just American, and whether foreign businesses indeed um, feel reassured and then develop their, their trade, investment, et cetera, relations in, in China. But I think it was a positive thing to do. It was criticized by someone on the Hill in Congress as sort of, how can you dare talk to Xi Jinping? He's such a, you know, vicious dictator, et cetera, et cetera, as if we everything needs to be pushed through that lens and therefore you don't get anything done at all. Um, but I think, you know, th that meeting really 
pushed back against that and, and showed that there are important interests here that we need to be able to deal with the Chinese on. And hopefully this, this dinner and this meeting with the CEOs will lead to some positive outcomes there in terms of both Chinese behavior and, and corporate involvement. Well, Marcus Wayne, I thank you very much for joining us here today. You're welcome. Thank you, Ian. And again, I may speak with Michael Swain, who's a senior research fellow and former director of the Quincy Institute's East Asia program and one of the most prominent American scholars of Chinese security studies. Previously, he worked for nearly 20 years as a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, specializing in Chinese defense and foreign policy, U.S.-China relations, and East Asian international relations. He also advises the U.S. government on Asian security issues, and his books include Remaining Aligned on the Challenges Facing Taiwan and Conflict and Cooperation in the Asia-Pacific Region, a Strategic Net Assessment. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now. One more light goes on